in case I forget, either remind me or will someone volunteer to go get the kids when I get to the invitation? That way they can come back for communion. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> One more thing before I forget. Um, Vern reminded me what Mike forgot, which was... Uh, uh, Bob Hinton is having a PET scan done today, so uh, we want to be mindful of our brother Bob as well uh, in our prayers. If you would, let's turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, we will be reading verses 14 through 22 as we conclude our series on the seven churches in Asia Minor. And Laodicea is the final church that our Lord addresses a brief little epistle, a little postcard, as it were, from Jesus with love. Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. Let's go ahead and read these verses, have them in our minds as we study God's Word this morning. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, to the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, but be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Lord God, as we pause and consider the church in Laodicea, enable us to see clearly the message that you delivered to them long ago but also how that message impacts us today as your church here in Modesto. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Laodicea could be any town USA simply by virtue of the fact that you and I, we live in America, actually puts us in the richest 2% of the world's population just by virtue of the fact that we live where we live. And if you're doing even remotely okay, that actually bumps you up even higher in the scale. That's why it's humorous, maybe not the right word, 
quixotic puzzling that people in our country bemoan the richest 1%, and little do they realize that in the grand scheme of things, that's them. We are rich, relatively speaking. Of course, wealth is a relative thing. If I were to ask you, what does it mean to be rich? Or who would you say is rich? We may reply with, uh, I don't know, maybe pointing to Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Carlos Slim, or some other wealthy person. But when we are confronted with the facts of the matter, that half of the world's population lives on $2.50 a day, Approximately 80% live on $10 a day. Now the answer to the question is a bit more revealing. Welcome to Laodicea in the 21st century. Because Laodicea, this was a city that was wealthy. What do we know about the city? Briefly, it was built in 250 B.C. on the banks of the Lycus River by Antiochus II. He named it after his wife, whose her name was Laodicea. So Laodicea. Laodicea, town he named for his wife. The city became extremely wealthy as a Roman province, and this was due to a couple reasons. One, they sold lots of woolen goods, and it was the, the, the products that they produced were of excellent quality, and they were produced by the black wool of the black sheeps that they raised in that area. Very fine and somewhat rare woolen garments. It was also a city of banking, high finance, and it was also a medical center. All of this contributed to the great wealth of the city of Laodicea. In fact, so great was her wealth that when an earthquake struck in A.D. 60, destroyed a lot of the city. The wealthy people of the city, they Rome said, hey, we'll help you out. And the wealthy, cities, uh, wealthy, wealthy citizens said, no, 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 that's okay. We don't need your help, Rome. We'll rebuild ourselves. And they did. And so, yes, they, they were so rich. And what came about was an, an attitude of self-sufficiency. They were self-sufficient as a city. That attitude apparently had slipped into the church. This attitude of self-sufficiency, of, of prosperity. Now Jesus, here in this brief letter, is going to set the record straight, as it were, to the angel, that can also be translated as messenger, your translation may say that, of the church in Laodicea, right? The words of the amen. The amen is the unchangeable one. The one who is firm in his purposes, firm in his promises. Jesus is the yes to all of God's promises. And he's also the faithful and true witness. Now we've, we've already come across this, if you've been reading the book of Revelation back in 1 and verse 5, that this is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. He is the faithful and true one. Indeed, we know from John's gospel. Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is truth incarnate, truth in the flesh. And so he is indeed the faithful and true witness. And he's also the beginning of God's creation. That's, that's okay. 
uh, the beginning. He's not a created being, as, as though he's the first creation of God, but rather he is the beginner of everything. Over in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, and verses 15 through 18, listen to this description from the Apostle Paul concerning Christ. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, we know that doesn't mean he's the first creation. It's pointing to his preeminence as even the beginner over creation, the origin of creation. And we know that because of the way firstborn is being used in this context. In fact, it's used just a few verses later in verse 18. He is the beginning, in the middle of verse 18, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, was Jesus the first person ever raised from the dead? Well, no, of course not. There were three in the Old Testament, and Jesus himself had raised at least three people during his earthly ministry, at least three are, that are recorded for us. So no, this isn't talking about he's the first resurrected person or the first creation. It's pointing to his preeminence. For by him, verse 16, for by him all things were created. That, again, points to the fact that he is the creator. He's the one through whom God created everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Sometimes my kids ask me very good questions, and they'll ask me, well, why did God create in the first place? Here is at least an answer in part, that not only did God through Christ create everything, but he also created all things for Christ. Christ is the purpose of all of creation, that it's, it's ultimately for Him. And He is before all things. In Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. First, he is the, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. There it is. Now, I bring up this passage because the Laodiceans would have been familiar with this text. Because when you turn to chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul says that when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So the, the church in Laodicea would have been familiar with this text. They would have been familiar with this letter that Paul had written. And I guess I should say just briefly about well, what about this letter to the Laodiceans? What's that? And why is it in our Bible? Well, the brief and short answer is it is not an inspired text. It is not a breathed out by God scripture like Colossians is or Philippians is. But Paul wrote it. Yeah, I'm sure Paul wrote a lot of things, but not everything he wrote is inspired. And that's the difference between Colossians and the letter to the Laodiceans. It was Paul probably at his best, but just Paul, not breathed out by God, inspired. That's the difference, and that's why we don't have the letter to the Laodiceans. Back to Revelation chapter 3. That gives us, again, further explanation, definition of what is meant here by the beginning of everything. What it means is he is the one who started it all in the beginning with God because he himself is God and all things were created through him. Christ is the origin of God's creation. The term also, therefore, the beginning of God's creation, beginning the, the, it can also mean the ruler 
over God's creation, all of God's creation. And that's good too. Because isn't it the fact that Christ is the one who holds all things together, as we just read. And so the ruler indeed holds all things together. This description, again, it would have been very familiar, would have sounded very familiar to the church in Laodicea who had no doubt heard the letter to the Colossians written. But you have this exalted definition and description of who Christ is. I wonder what it did to the church in Laodicea when they heard this. What does it do for us? When we hear this exalted description of our Lord, and we, we hear about how He is the origin of God's creation, you and I, we have our origin in Christ. And therefore, since we exist through Him, shouldn't it be that we also exist for Him? So that in all, in all things, He may be glorified. Verse 15 begins, I know your works. That's familiar. We've come across that before. Jesus has said that to several of these churches in Asia Minor. I know your works. And it points to, again, his omniscience. He knows. He knows all of our works. But there's something new here. You are neither cold nor hot. That's, that's new here. And what's this all about here, this cold and hot business? Would that you were either cold or hot. Jesus is saying, I wish. I wish you were cold or I wish you were hot. And this is what's very interesting about this text. Because usually why we come to this text is to say, you need to get hot for Jesus, right? Well, actually, Jesus says, if, you're, if you were cold, I could work with that. And usually we read into that, cold is like a... Well, that's, a, that's a bad thing. It's, a, it's kind of a, an indifferent, cold-hearted whatever. That may not be what the Laodiceans understood, and therefore, perhaps our reading into this isn't a good thing. What would this have meant for the church in Laodicea? Well, Laodicea was built above the floor of the Lycus Valley, and so it was different than other cities. For example, Colossae, which was built on the floor of the valley, they actually had access to a cold spring. You want cold water, you live in Colossae. They had that cold spring. On the other hand, Laodicea was lower than Hierapolis. Hierapolis built a little higher up. And therefore, they actually had access to a hot water spring. And both hot and cold water could be used in different ways. Hot water could be used for healing or, or therapeutic purposes. Cold water, we know about cold water. It's refreshing. And uh, it's cooling, especially on a hot summer day, yes? Hot and cold both have good things to them. Why, Jesus would say, I wish you were either one of these, because I can use that. But here's Laodicea trapped in the middle, stuck in the middle. And they didn't have a spring. They had to have their water piped in via an aqueduct. The aqueducts are still there. And... By the time, if they piped it in from Hierapolis, which they did, by the time it got to Laodicea, because they had to travel several miles, when it got there, it was actually lukewarm, and it was so full of minerals that it just, it tasted awful. It was, I don't know, nausea-inducing. Oh, well, because you are lukewarm, you guys in Laodicea, you know about lukewarm water. I mean, even for us, right? You know, some, some Sunday mornings I'll, I'll be going over my lesson with a, with a cup of coffee and, 
and, and, and it takes a little while to go through it, make sure I got everything that I need here, and I'll just lose track of time. And that coffee, when I started, was hot. And then after a little while, I go reach for it, grab it, take a sip, and oh, it's gone lukewarm. Oh, man, right? I don't know, maybe you like lukewarm coffee. I don't, all right? Oh, man, that's, that's terrible. That's what it's like. And then you add on top of that all those nausea-inducing minerals. Just ah. And Jesus says, since you're neither hot or cold, I'm just going to spit you out of my mouth. And the force of this in the original is actually stronger. It's, uh, I'm going to vomit you up. And, and that lukewarm water, that was one of the purposes that they had it for. Was, it was The only thing it was good for was to make people kind of upchuck if they had eaten something they shouldn't have, ingested something they shouldn't have. That's all it's good for. And Laodicea, that's where you guys are. Because you are not hot or you're not cold, I wish that you would be a hot spring or a cold spring. But because you're lukewarm, you make me sick. Man, that's, wow, Jesus? Strong words here. It's kind of like a, like a bad version of Goldilocks, right? You're not too hot. You're not too cold. You're just the right temperature for God to spit you out of, your, out of his mouth. They aren't safe. It sounds like they are in jeopardy. I will spit you out. Your translation may say I'm about to. The force here is I will. Jesus, he can't stand it. It's just yuck. And so I don't know what this does for you, but it certainly helps us to, to get a clearer idea and a clearer interpretation of what's being said here. Again, typically we say you got to get hot for Jesus, but also if you get cold for Jesus, and not in the way that we typically think with our Western American idea, but what it meant in their day, both the hotness and the coldness, Christ can use that. I think about that because a church may be hot, yes, a church may be hot in that they're equipped perhaps to grant healing to hurting members or or broken souls can come and and find the therapeutic message of the gospel in their midst or maybe a church may be cold as it were in that they're a safe haven where where people the, the hurting of the world can come and they can find refreshment they've been pursuing the things of this world for too long and and what they need is the cooling touch of the gospel to set them at ease but a lukewarm church, Jesus is saying, that's, that's good for nothing. You guys aren't really standing for me. You're just standing for yourself. That's verse 17. You say, let me tell you why this is so bad. You say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Here's that self-sufficient attitude that had crept in from the surrounding culture into the church. And so the church refuses to acknowledge their need for Christ. They refuse to acknowledge their need for God. They refuse to acknowledge their need for the Holy Spirit. They refuse to acknowledge that they are spiritual paupers in desperate need of the grace, mercy, love of God. Self-sufficient. And as a result... They had become lax in their calling, not bearing any fruit. 
They are not doing any good works. They are indifferent, perhaps, aloof in their Christianity. And the description of these Christians is even more stunning, isn't it? Not realizing that here's Jesus' assessment. Jesus' divine assessment of this church. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Doesn't exactly sound like Christians, right? I mean, that, you're getting the song wrong, right? Amazing Grace was blind and now I'm still blind, right? No. They sound like Christians who are lost, look too much like the world around them. Again, they're, they're self-sufficient, they're self-reliant, they're self-righteous. I need nothing, not even the righteousness of Christ. Got my own righteousness for that. The reality is they're self-deceived. They think they're well-equipped, think they're well-off, when in fact they are ineffective and pitiable. They are wretched. Wretched carries the idea of being miserable. They're unhappy. They are distressed. Stark contrast, again, with the self-sufficient city of Laodicea. They are pitiable. That is, they are in need of mercy. Not their own merits. They are poor, surrounded by the wealth of this city. So wealthy they can say, Rome, uh, you can keep your government bailout. We don't need it. And yet they're impoverished, Jesus says. They are in, and the term here is it's grinding poverty. It just, it leaves you empty over and over. They're blind, no vision, no spiritual vision. They lack discernment and even basic things. And they are naked. Garments are e- either shot through with holes or they're just completely lacking. Which brings shame, by the way, right? Verse 18, the shame of your nakedness is what Jesus talks about there. And listen, what happened in Laodicea, I believe, happens even in a lot of churches today. They have a high view of themselves, and yet they are wretched and deficient in the things that really matter. And rather than influencing the society around them, the culture around them, with the gospel for good, what ends up happening is society begins to influence the church. And the church breathes in the secondhand smoke of the world and begins to act a lot like the world. Until eventually the church looks so much like the world that they're virtually indistinguishable. And when this this happens, Christians end up in a state like the Christians in Laodicea. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. It's like that old story where the emperor had no clothes, right? Here's Jesus calling it like it is. The church has no clothes. You guys are walking around saying, oh yeah, I'm dressed in the finest stuff. No, you're really not. And so, verse 18... I counsel you, here's the counsel of Christ, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, right, long before, is it Gordon Liddy who's saying you need to buy gold or whatever on TV, long before that, here's Jesus with, you need real gold, real spiritual wealth that only Christ can provide, that way you may be rich, that's why Jesus came into the world, why He, being rich, became poor for our sake, that we might become rich in spiritual things. White garments that you may clothe yourself, and also the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Salve to anoint your eyes. Each of these, again, very pointed, 
right to the heart of these Laodicean Christians. What's very interesting is this is the, the Lord giving counsel to a church which is causing him nausea. He still offers his counsel. Then just walk away and say, I'm done with you, whatever. Good luck, don't let the door hit you on the way out type thing. He's the one, the only one, who can make them rich. And he says, listen, here's what you need to do. Uh, so the salve, let's, I guess we can work backwards here. The salve to anoint your eyes. Remember I mentioned earlier, Laodicea was a, a medical center. They had a medical center there that was part of their wealth. What they would do is they took, uh, it was called the, the Phrygian stone, and they would grind it to powder, and they would make an ointment with that for the eyes that would be applied to the eyes in order to heal eye diseases. Here is, <laughs> here is the great physician, and he is offering not physical healing, spiritual healing of their spiritual blindness so that they might see their own spiritual condition. The white garments, but you may clothe yourself. This is in, again, contrast to the black wool, those fine woolen black garments that uh, were so typical of the people of Laodicea. Jesus is drawing a contrast. Guess what? You're going to wear white garments, my white garments. You're going to stand out as different from the rest of the city. That's the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to look different than the society and the culture around you. Not to mention, this may be an echo from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9, where the Ancient of Days wears clothing white as snow. And so here is God's people, and they are to be imitators of God in holiness and in purity. And of course, the gold refined with fire, this would be very fine gold. This is, again, a picture of wealth. And you're surrounded by all this wealth in the city. The reality is only I can give you what you need, Jesus is saying. Buy from me. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Here's the reason for all this. Why Jesus doesn't just dust off his hands and say, I'm done with you guys. Good luck on your own. The reason for it is the love of Christ. Those whom I love love. They no doubt had hurt him deeply, probably brought about anger, wrath of God. If nothing else, at least the nausea, the, of the lukewarmness of this church had been quite a bit. And yet, overarching all of this is the heart of our Lord, the heart of Christ and his love for his people. He's at work, still mighty to save his people. And it's his word that serves as the standard for the, my, my translation says, I reprove. It, it could also be understood as a rebuke, and I, I prefer that term, the rebuke. In fact, the word that's used here is used also of the Spirit over in John 16 and verse 8, where the Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Convict there. Same word. Here's the, the harmony among the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, united in their purpose. And so Jesus says, I will rebuke. And he's the only one fully qualified to do this. To identify and point out the shortcomings and sin in his people. 
And again, it's his word. That is the standard for that rebuke. Not only will he rebuke, he will also discipline. That's okay. This can also be translated as instruct. In fact, it's the instruction that a child would receive. And so both the rebuke and the instruction are necessary here. And in fact, these are two of the four goals of Scripture. Why God gave Scripture in the first place. Over in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, where it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is sufficient for rebuke, reproof, and uh, correction, instruction, training in righteousness, all those things. Here is Jesus giving us two of those uh, in this one verse. Again, words of Christ, they confront our Western American idea of what Christ has for us, what it means to be a Christian. There are many Christians who think, well, Christ loves me, that means he wants me to be happy. Well, here he says, I reprove, I rebuke, and I instruct those whom I love actually. And as I read elsewhere, no discipline at the time seems pleasant. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, verse 20. Again, how this statement has been understood and interpreted is as an outreach passage for the lost. That Jesus, Jesus, he's standing at the door of your heart. That door that only has a knob on the inside. And only you can open it. He wants so desperately for you to open that door. But notice the context of this. To whom is Christ speaking? Not, not to the lost of the world. He's speaking to his people. He's talking to Christians, his church. And he is knocking and waiting to come in to his church. That's what is very interesting. I stand at the door and knock. What would this have meant to the first century Christians? Well, let me make a couple of connections here about standing at the door. Who is it that stands at the door? Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 and 36. Luke 12, 35 and 36. Jesus says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like people who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. It is the servants who stand and wait for their master so they may open the door, fling it open for the master to come in. And they're happy for that. There's also one other picture of this. It's over in the book of James, chapter 5. James chapter 5 and verse 9. Here is the half-brother of Jesus, James. And listen carefully to what he says. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. James also writing to Christians. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It is the master, it is the judge who stands at the door and knocks. And in fact, the way this is written in the original language is Jesus has been standing and he continues to stand at the door and he is presently knocking. Christ is near. He's right at the door as the righteous master and judge ready to bring judgment on those who think themselves complete in themselves. 
not needing Christ. That's the context for this. That is what is meant here by I stand at the door and knock. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, then I'll come into him. Now, you remember last week when we talked about the church in Philadelphia, remember how Jesus introduced himself there? The one that is the holy one, the true one, has the keys of David. And who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is very interesting. This is the one, Jesus is the one, who opens and no one will shut. And yet he's inviting his church to open the door for him. It's an invitation. This is an invitation which is individual. It's personal. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. It's directed toward Christians, as we've already mentioned. This is how gracious our Lord is. That if we hear His voice and open the door and invite Him to, and, and we renew fellowship with Christ. That's the idea here of eating and drinking. We'll eat with Him and He with us. What happens here is, it's an invitation to the church in Laodicea to renew what they think they have, but don't. It is not reality. And yet Jesus is saying, you want to eat the family meal with me? You want to gather around the good stuff with me? You want to fellowship with me and eat with him? Then you need to be zealous and repent. Verse 19, yeah? Be zealous and repent. Relationship must be renewed or else all that awaits is judgment. This is what he said back in 3 verse 3 to the church in Sardis. If you don't wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what hour I come against you. So to the one who conquers, conquering here in the context or overcoming, your translation may say, the context here is to conquer, to overcome means to be zealous. It means to repent. And turn toward Christ. Church, that's the force of this. That's what it means to overcome. But if you overcome, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. You get the throne. You get to reign with Christ. This is an idea that shows up later on in chapter 20 of the Revelation. Uh, and it's specifically mentioned for martyrs who gave their life in faithfulness to Christ. They are the ones who get to reign with Christ for a thousand years. However, whatever that means, however that's interpreted, right? But here's Jesus saying, listen, if you overcome, if you will be zealous and repent, if you will abandon your lukewarmness and be either cold or hot, then you get to sit with me on my throne. See, that's the thing is Christ, he's been reigning. He doesn't yet have to wait till the future to start his millennial reign. Christ is reigning here and now. And those who are truly his people, who hear his voice, heed it, obey it, they are the ones who join with him and sit with him on his throne. By the way, you want a description of what this throne looks like and the glory of it, just keep reading to chapter 4 and you get a throne room scene. And it is a grand and glorious throne. 
you sit with Jesus. Notice also he says, I also conquered. And I sat down with my father on his throne. So here's God the Father on his throne. God the Son seated with him. And then we get to sit with them, as it were. You sit with, well, how did this whole thing start? The beginner of creation. You get to sit with the creator of the world. What's it going to be, Laodicea? What's it going to be? Is it going to be the world? You're going to continue with the surrounding culture and society? Or is it going to be the one who created it? The one who sustains it? What's it going to be? And Christ concludes this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Listen up and put it into practice. That's the epistle to the Laodiceans. And that's the, the conclusion of these seven letters to these churches in Asia Minor. Just a, a final word, I guess, is in order. Just at a glance as we've gone through each of these. One thing I hope that's come up is the, the church's value, an, an individual church's value and status. It is not dependent upon the name on the outside of the building. It's not dependent upon the history of that church. It isn't even dependent upon what the community, the surrounding community, says about that church. The ultimate judgment that matters for eternity is the church's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. doesn't matter about the size, the location, the amount of influence it has. What matters is what Jesus says about his church. Why it's so important that we listen, why, why we've carefully worked our way through these letters and listen to the voice of our Lord about these things. Let me just ask, is He in the midst of our congregation? Is He loved by this church? Is He embraced by this church? Is He worshipped by this church? Is He honored by this church? And I mean not just what we do Sunday mornings, but what we do Tuesday mornings and Thursday afternoons and Saturday nights. Or, is he outside? Is he knocking? Is he effectively excluded due to our own self-perceived self-sufficiency? God versus church. Five of these churches, Jesus had something against them. And although Christ has brought several and very serious charges against his church, do not miss where this all came from. Those whom I love. This, these words from Christ have been from the lips of the Lord who loves His church. It reveals His love. And because He loves His church so much and desires a holy bride, He has said the things that are hard to say. But at the same time, even though they may be hard sayings, I believe it reveals the gentleness of our sovereign Lord with His people. This, these are messages where He is wooing His bride with very great and precious promises to them. And it is so much better to hear and to heed the voice of the Master. To repent and obey much better than to face the judgment of our Lord. Let's commit this to prayer.
O divine master, may we have ears to hear so that we may clearly hear what you have said to your church. What you said all those years ago, what you are saying to us even today. May we put these things into practice. May we love you, embrace you, worship you, and honor you in all that we do, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you. Talk about blind leading the blind. No, just... <clears throat> no, 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 Lou. We appreciate you.